This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored here we go another episode of literary tracks welcome everyone to the show thank you for joining us i am just one of your hosts bruce gibson and with me on this episode number 243 is dan gunther hey bruce how's it going it's great i feel like we should be at a wrestling match i like it let's get ready oh we can't finish that because of copyright purposes Oh, let's get yeah. ready to read then, I guess. Let's get ready to live long and read on. I like it. <laughs> that should be the tagline at the end of the show. I like that idea. Everyone should listen to the end of the show just to hear what we're going to say. <laughs> also, and I'm way overdue in saying this, but thank you to everyone who tweeted hashtag to the end. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Thank you so much. I don't know what that means. I think there were, I think maybe three people tweeted that to us and it was I weeks forgot and weeks about ago. that. I know I forgot about it too until I started getting the tweets because it's so long in between doing the episode and when it comes out. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to look that up now. So today's feature is going to be a Deep Space Nine book, and it's called Millennium Book One The Fall of Terak Nor. This is a book I think I chose to do this series. I know it was on my wish list. I'm not sure, but I also think maybe someone also requested it or it came up before. I don't know. The thing is, this I wanted to make sure was on the schedule because I read these books years ago. I enjoyed them, and I thought they would be great in a way to honor the 30th anniversary of Deep Space Nine. So we're going to cover all three books here in the next two to three months. So in this episode, we're going to review it, and a few episodes later, we'll do the second book, and then a few after that, we'll do the third book. So before we get to that, we've got some news items. So here we go. Star Trek Discovery Special Edition, The Making of Season 1. Now, this I got a preview of when we were at Star Trek Las Vegas, Dan, and I think, if you may remember, there was a book panel on the opening day on Wednesday afternoon at... I think it was at one o'clock and my flight landed at 1230. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember that. That was, uh, it it was fun to watch you come scurrying in halfway through the panel. And that was a big panel because 
lots of really great news got announced there, but uh, I was really glad you made it. And that was the first time we met face to face. It was. <laughs> it was at that panel. <laughs> and I come in, hey, I, have, I travel a lot. I got down to a science. I got off the plane at 1230 and was walking in to the panel at 105. So 35 minutes to get off the plane, take a taxi, get to the hotel, go to registration to get my badge so I could get in. And then I took my luggage with me into the panel. And now <laughs> they think about it. I walked right past the front of the stage in front of everybody watching <laughs> and put my <laughs> luggage off to the side, sat down. Hi, Dan. You're like, hi, Bruce. Nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, the uh, Titan Publishing came out with Star Trek Discovery Special Edition, and they and they showed it up there on the stage. And then uh, I think it was Ian Spelling might have been the one that was talking about it. somebody up there who was on the panel. I can't remember. And they had to leave early, and they threw their copy down on a table and said somebody could have it. And I ran up and grabbed it. <laughs> I was very impressed with you that day, both making it to the panel on time and having the guts to go grab that because. That was impressive. I was, that was cool. <laughs> Guts is the key word because at first I was like, I don't want to take, I'll, I want somebody else to have it. And no one was going up. And I gave it at least 10, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, crap, I'm going up. I'm going to grab it because I want this thing. So I'm holding it in my hands. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is because there are four different uh, cover editions that are out and they really are just now hitting bookshelves or just recently have been hitting bookshelves. So there's a hardcover version. There's the regular magazine format. There's a preview edition. And then there's the Star Trek Las Vegas exclusive cover, which is the one that I have here. So this is all just a preview of season one. It's like the companion edition to season one of Discovery. And it's very colorful. It goes through every episode. There's interviews with actors and people behind the scenes. It gives you a little nuggets of inside information throughout. Uh, gives you ship details and designs and phaser designs and all kind of, all the props and all these things it's a really wonderful companion book and so even though i didn't have to pay for this one <laughs> i recommend <laughs> going and getting it it's 9.95 i think it says the is the cover price 9.99 us and canada for that and uh dan i i i'm sorry i didn't even share it with you while we were there <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. Actually, it was something that I'm I'm kind of kicking myself. I meant to pick up from the Titan Books booth while we were in Vegas, but I just forgot. It slipped my mind. So I never did get a copy, but I'll have to keep an eye out at the bookstore and uh, grab just the regular edition. Well, honestly, I, I mean, I would have shared it with you, but I put it in my bag as soon as I grabbed it and I never looked at it until I got home. I never looked at it the <laughs> whole time we were in Vegas because I just didn't have time. We were always you know, running around and doing things. And until I got home, I was like, oh, wow, I, I haven't looked at this yet, but it's really nice. So that's in the news because it should be available everywhere now. And that being said, this is the part I've been waiting for. Let's go into the feature. <laughs> I have never seen you more excited about a book. Well, it helps that I just had a beer. So as I mentioned here in the feature, we're going to review the Deep Space Nine book, Millennium, the Fall of Tarek Noor. It's book one of three. It was written by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens and published in March of 2000. Now, it also, if you get the original edition, it includes the eighth chapter of Starfleet Year One by Michael Jan Freeman. 
at that time, it was a, they were releasing chapters of this Starfleet year one book at the back of different Star Trek novels. So every month a new Star Trek novel came out, it gave you the next chapter. But I just wanted to mention that that was part of this book. And also the fall of Tarek Noor was released as an audio book and read by Joe Morton. So the book has been out for 18 years now. It came out shortly after Deep Space Nine went off the air. So all seven seasons were completed. Dan, have you read this book before? I have not read this book before. And you just made my heart stop a little bit because you said it came out 18 years ago. And I was 18 in the year 2000. So it came out half of my life ago. <laughs> and it I'm took just you now realizing half of that. a lifetime to get to it. <laughs> it did. It did. Yeah. No, I've never read this book before. Uh, it's been a book that I've always heard really good things about this whole trilogy. And for whatever reason, I just never got around to it. I do have all three books. Uh, I picked them up at a used bookstore at some point along the way and added them to my list to read at some point, but never got around to it. So definitely was really excited to see this on the schedule and to pick it up and finally read this story. I read these books when they first came out, and I mean, I'm giving it away right now. I love them, but that doesn't mean I love them now. You'll have to wait to the end to find out, because sometimes when you read a book and then you revisit it years later, sometimes you go, what? Why did I love this book so much? I don't feel the same way now. Or there's times I've reread books, even on the show, where I read it before, I didn't care that much for it, and now I really loved it. Why? You know, it just all depends where you are in your life or what was going on at the time sometimes. So my perspective may have changed. So I'm just going to throw that out there. That's a little tease. Now, so don't fast forward. You're saying that you're not the exact same person you were 18 years ago? No, I've been through so many transporters that I've died and come back every time. So I'm not the same person. I'm a recreation every single time. <laughs> nice. It starts off with the prologue and it's titled In the Hands of the Prophets. And it finds Cisco in the wormhole after the series finale, What You Leave Behind. So he's in the wormhole with the aliens and he's talking to them just like we saw in like the very first episode in the wormhole where all the people that he knows are those characters are being represented by the aliens and talking to them. So, you know, there'll be Cassidy, there'll be Jake, there'll be Dax, there'll be all these different people. And he's starting to wonder, you know, why is he there? What is, what is his purpose? And he starts to feel as if he's supposed to teach them about linear time, because as you know, with the wormhole aliens, they don't really see time as a linear thing the way we do. And there's the scene where he basically escorts them there. He finds himself in a scene on the, on deep space nine on the station where he escorts them through the threshold of the temple. And that's where that prologue ends. So that takes place right after the series. Did you like this scene, Dan? Yeah, it was an interesting take on things. I appreciated that, you know, the bulk of the book happens at a very specific point during the series. And I kind of knew that going in, so starting it out like this kind of surprised me because I hadn't realized there was this link to what happens after the series was over. So I thought it was a really interesting way to start the book, uh, knowing that where it takes place in the series is not then. Yeah, you'd almost think reading the book, oh, this starts right after the series. This book must be the first of the relaunched Deep Space Nine books, but it's not necessarily. You're right. It's 
the the bulk of the book takes place in a different time period. But then when we get to chapter one, we're now during the day of withdrawal. And this is when the Cardassians leave Tarak Nor, their occupation of Bajor. And on the station, we see Odo and Quark during this time period. And so there's a little scene venture that goes on in this chapter involving these two characters during the withdrawal. Then we get to the majority of the book that takes place in the six-year of Cisco's time on the station. So basically season six of Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the book, it changes a little, but we'll save that for later. We're not going <laughs> to talk about that right now. So as you were saying, Dan, I guess you knew that by the time you got to chapter two, we were settling into the time frame that's supposed to take place. Right. And very specific time frame too. So this takes place between the episode, The Sound of Her Voice, and the season six finale, The Tears of the Prophets, which, you know, it's very cool that they picked such a specific time and place for it to happen because we get a lot of references to things happening during that episode. There are offhand comments about, oh, Cisco and his crew aboard the Defiant weren't able to save that captain they were trying to rescue. Uh, and they talked about the temporal displacement of that, as well as just very minor things that like Jake was doing with Quark. He was researching a novel and finding out about how Quark does his semi-legal operations and Odo actually was aware of that and all that stuff. So I really liked how closely it followed that episode. I didn't get a chance to go back and watch the sound of her voice while reading this, but I think that would have been something that worked really well. Oh, I see. That's the one thing I love to do is go back and watch episodes when I read a book and it makes reference to it or it takes place around that time. Then I want to go back and watch the episode. I haven't done that yet either. Mm. But now I feel like going to do that right now. But I can't because we're talking about the book. So I'll do that <laughs> a little later after this. So now reading this book, I have to ask you something because there's a lot going on. And you had mentioned that it seems like that we're dropped into the middle of a bunch of plots. And it's it's a confusing mismatch and you're questioning things like what's going on? Were you confused or is this bad or good or it wasn't so much that I was confused. I mean, it's it's just a very distinct way of telling a story, kind of dropping you right in the middle of something that's going on. And my high school and university English courses are failing me right now. I can't remember the term for that where you're dropped right in the middle of the action and kind of have to figure it out. But I, I thought it worked really well for this book. There's some things happening during the Cardassian occupation, during the end of the occupation, that we don't really get to understand right away. But I feel like that works really well because it mirrors the experiences of the main characters. So Quark and Odo are kind of undergoing this Cardassian plot I guess and they have no idea what's going on they have to go into this room and do this thing and it's very like they don't know why they have to do that and the Cardassians aren't telling them anything and I think me like us as the readers are kind of like what's going on I don't get it but that's exactly how Quark and Odo are reacting to the situation so I think that works really really well a lot of authors I've talked to actually say they'll they'll write their novel and then they'll delete the first chapter because that as a technique just works really well because a lot of it is kind of exposition that really isn't necessary and, and stuff that the reader just picks up while they're 
reading the action. So, you know, it, it kind of made me think of that a little bit. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You know, I, it worked for me too. I love how we get to this day of withdrawal and we're seeing what Quark and Odor are dealing with. And, and Quark goes into this environment where he's now all of a sudden outside and he's looking up at the stars and then boom, you get to chapter two and we're on the station and it's years later and you start to wonder, well, wait, what just happened with Quark? What was going on there? What, what all was happening? And it really creates a mystery it's really a good setup for a mystery because like you're saying, we're involved with the characters trying to figure out what is going on here. What is happening? I mean, it's a day in the life on the station, but things start to come up where you start questioning. Why don't they seem to remember this or what's going on or do they know? And they're just not saying anything. And there's a lot of questions going on. So it makes me keep wanting to turn the page to find out, you know, what are the answers or when are we going to figure this out and when something's going to be revealed? And that's what just kept me going through it for sure. I also like, this is just kind of a, a tiny little tie into a previous novel that we read. I was worried that this book would really clash with what we learned about Garrick in the novel, A Stitch in Time. And in that novel, basically they, Garrick says that he kind of missed the Cardassians leaving. They just kind of got up one day and they were gone and he had been left behind. And I was like, Oh, that fits perfectly with this because supposedly, even though he's not admitting it and Odo's not admitting it, they seem to have this missing time syndrome where they don't really remember what happened on the day of withdrawal. So if you can, it's kind of one of those things where if you squint, you can make it all fit that Garrick missed that day. So he woke up and the Cardassians were gone and he went, Oh crap, I'm stuck here. <laughs> That's what I really like about the scene where Quark is being accused of murder of Dale Norton. He's an Andorian business partner of Quark's who had come up to the station and was winning at Dabo and won big. And so then he is found murdered. So, of course, Odo assumes that, oh, Quark must have murdered him because Dale Norton won all this money at Dabo in Quark's bar. So, yeah, it, it, who else could it have been but Quark, it had to be you. And Quark's like, you know, why are you always accusing me? What, you know, what is wrong? Like, you never take my word for it. Why is it me? Go look for the murder. Why do you just think it's me? And in some ways, I agree with Quark on this. I was really getting frustrated for Quark because it did seem that Odo and the rest of their crew were just like, oh, because you're Quark. So you had to have been the murderer because it's who you are. And I really don't really believe that Odo as professional as he is and what, what a proud person he is about, you know, finding the right criminal or murderer and something would just accept the fact, Oh, I'm making an assumption that it has to be Quark and that's who it is. And I'm not going to look for the other. I would have liked it better if the character would have said in his head that we would have heard him say, or say to a character, I, it may be Quark. It may not, but I want Quark to believe that it's him because if it's not him, he probably knows something that I and this will get him to reveal it, that will lead me down the path of the real murderer. But that was never said. It was just, Odo just had blinders on that. It's Quark. Yeah, that actually really bugged me, especially after a while, too. Like, it felt at the beginning that maybe it was a tactic to keep Quark off balance or something like that. But, you know, as we go into the story, Odo seems to just really be fixated on this idea of pinning this, not pinning it, he's not framing Quark, but... um accusing Quark of this murder and really believing that he is the murderer 
for not a lot of evidence, I don't think. And it, it did start to bug me because Odo is better than that. And Quark's not a murderer. I think even, I might be wrong, but I think Odo even says in an episode of Deep Space Nine, well, you're not a murderer, Quark, or something like that. Like, he's not somebody that does that sort of thing or even has any kind of history of that. He's, a, according to Odo, a swindler and a petty thief and, you know, a cheater and a gambler. That's that's about the extent of Quark's crimes as far as Odo's usually concerned. Yeah, I could see Odo saying something like, if somebody asks Odo, do you think Quark murdered? He's like, mm, Quark is many things, but he's not a murderer. You know? Yeah, like that That sounds really familiar. Like I, I would almost want to place a bet that Odo had said that line at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Um, and then the reason I was also bringing this up is because you were talking about Garrick, and I love that through these exchanges, they start to realize how they don't have a memory of the day of withdrawal, uh, which we get to later in the book. But Cork's like, I don't remember the day i for some reason i don't have memories and i was like hmm i don't either and garrick's like oh yes but i remember every detail of that day and cork's like oh no he doesn't you know after court after garrick leaves cork's like he doesn't remember a detail can't you people tell garrick is lying he if he says he remembers every detail he doesn't he doesn't remember anything can't you tell when he's lying and i just love that part <laughs> can't you tell when garrick is lying yes his lips are moving i mean it's what he does. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's get to some other story points here in the book. Um, so there's just little things in here that really stood out to me that I like. Early on in the book, Dax is on the bridge of the original USS Enterprise, Kirk's USS Enterprise, and Pike's, and April's, just throwing those out there. But <laughs> anyway, she's on there, on, of course, on a holodeck, and she's dressed in Starfleet blues, miniskirt, her hair's up, just like similar to what she was doing on Trials and Tribulations. It's a simulation where she is going to fight with Worf on the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> and it gets uh, a little Klingon romantic uh, here in this scene. <laughs> What'd you think of that scene? I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really cool. And it's the kind of thing that, like, if I had access to a hollow suite, I'd be doing stuff like that, you know, reenacting my favorite Star Trek episodes, basically, because they're reenacting the fight between Kirk's forces and Kang's forces when they were under the influence of the Beta 11A entity, also known in various novels as an asterisk inside two brackets that I don't know how to pronounce, <laughs> right. but which is interesting because that figures into another book series that we're waiting on the final book for, but we probably shouldn't talk about that, I guess, but that's the sort of thing I do. I'd reenact all these famous Star Trek episodes basically. And the fight itself is really cool because you can picture them. First of all, Worf is in a classic tos klingon uniform which i thought was pretty cool like, yeah i thought that was funny yeah i wouldn't mind seeing Worf in that just to see what that looks like and of course dax in a science mini skirt on the bridge of the enterprise fighting with Worf. like that's just a cool scene i want to see that yeah and that little asterisk alien was there too <laughs> exactly soaking up the feelings of aggression and hatred and what i liked about that was dax talks about you know, she, basically she ends up tickling Worf, which is really amusing in and of itself. And 
under the assumption that Kirk's crew defeated this thing by laughing and getting the Klingons to all laugh at it. But Worf doesn't, apparently the Klingons recollection of that is different. And it's the, the way they defeated it is not through laughter in Klingon history books, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I forgot about that part. That is interesting, but I do like the relationship between the two in this book and that scene there. There's not a whole lot of Worf in this book. And a lot, not a lot about their relationship, but just the fact that she's tickling him and, you know, he's, you know, trying to not to laugh, but he's laughing. It's just like, just, just those little moments, just bringing these characters together. And that reminds me of, there's a scene later in the book, and I think there's a couple of scenes that kind of allude to this, but one in particular where I remember Dax talking to Bashir. And of course, as the series had started, Bashir had a huge crush on Jadzia. And she was just always like, Oh, basically little boy, whatever. <laughs> like she wasn't really that interested. Well, now she's married to Worf, but she was being flirtatious with Bashir. And we actually got some inside thoughts from her of, you know what? If Worf wasn't around, I may have considered Bashir now to date him. Like there was like, I'm showing some interest, which I love because I felt like it was the author's ways of hinting that, hmm, Dax does get with Bashir later when Dax becomes Ezri Dax. And there was actually a very blatant foreshadowing of that at some point too. And I think Dax thinks something along the lines of, uh, I wonder what woman eventually will end up with Bashir or something like that. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. I see what they're doing here. Uh, But this also presaged a line that Ezri actually directly says to Bashir, which is really awkward in the show when it does come up. Ezri does directly say to Bashir with regards to Jadzia, you know, if Worf hadn't have come along, it would have been you. And Bashir has the most awkward look on his face after that. And Ezri is like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That's really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beauty about this book being written after the series ended, that you can link those little things into it. So, yeah, there's <laughs> that foreshadowing going on for sure. And I like that Jadzia Dax is competent enough and, you know, poised enough to not outright say that to Bashir, whereas Ezri is very awkward and trying to figure out these new hosts and all that stuff. So it's funny that. It almost makes that line less awkward for me, knowing that Jadzia had thought it back then and just knew better than to say it out loud. And then Ezri, of course, just awkwardly blurts it out. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I Yeah, that, that's, again, what I love. Uh, some of the scenes in the book that are like this between characters and just exploring those relationships. And so then we get to Jake. And he's writing a novel and he's using that experience of being a novelist and looking at what's going on the station and thinking, okay, how can I help solve this mystery by how I would maybe write this into a novel? So he's looking at almost like as a piece of fiction as to what's going on the station and trying to figure out how things are happening because how he would approach it in a novel. But anyway, so then he has these two characters, Higgs and Fermion. And they're supposed to represent basically Quark and Morn in his stories. And it's called The Ferengi Connection is the book. Again, it's just so fun to see him write his book based on characters on the station and argue about it with Nog. 
Yeah, I really, I, for the most part, enjoyed Jake's part in this story. There were times that I noticed I felt like the writers were treating him a little bit more as a kid. Yeah, than... I thought that too, yeah. Okay, I, I'm glad it wasn't just me because, there, yeah, there were a couple times where he felt more, yeah, like the little kid in the jumpsuit <laughs> going up to ops to talk to Cisco or something like that. But for the most part, I enjoyed this. I like them using his status as a writer to work that into the story. And also, like I said, picking up on those really tiny story elements from the sound of her voice and carrying them forward. I had forgotten until I read this book that he was writing a crime novel and trying to get into the characters' heads by watching Quark. And the fact that they used that in this story I thought was really good. And the other thing that I didn't realize at the time, and I just realized while we were talking about the characters on the other side of the page, Higgs and Fermion, they're two types of elementary particles, the Higgs boson and a Fermion is uh, a type of an electron or proton. And the characters are based on Quark, which is another elementary particle. And Morn, which doesn't really fit. But I was just like, wait a minute. They're all particles. That's just ridiculous and clever. And it's annoying me that I hadn't realized it until now. Elementary, dear Watson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't pick up on that. So I'm glad that you uh, figured that out. That's really a a fun element to know. Ah. (laughs) Uh, See? (laughs) So speaking of Jake and Nog... Part of the storyline is that they had found a hollow suite on the station that had been hidden in a abandoned Jeffrey's tube that no one on the station knew about. Not even O'Brien. O'Brien didn't even know anything about it. And they had been going there since they were younger kids and they went to revisit it. This plays a big part here later in the novel. So I guess maybe we're starting to get into spoiler territory. I would say so at this point. So Yeah, I'd agree this is probably the time where it's going to be unavoidable <laughs> coming up, I think. So if you haven't read and you don't want to be spoiled, then go read the book right now. Just go do it now. It's short. You'll get right through it. Yeah, Wait, right. no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought this was really cool because... And I'll get into this a little later, too, about some other story elements. But what I love about it is this makes the station feel big because they have been on the station for six years and there's sections of it that no one has been to or there's sections of it that have been hidden and not everybody's aware of it. And so, again, that creates a bit of a mystery. Like, what were the Cardassians up to that they would have a hollow suite hidden away, blocked off in some Jeffrey's tube that no one knows about. Something is going on there. And these kids have been playing in it this whole time. And it's it, it's tied into the uh, servers or whatever elsewhere on the station because they're able to use Holosuite programs that, you know, Jake's father has used or somebody else has used, that familiar programs in this Holosuite. This is an element of Deep Space Nine that I've always really appreciated. I like the idea that it's set in this location that has decades of history before our characters came to it. And it was constructed by an alien race. And there are all these mysteries that are contained within it. It's something that the series went to a couple times, not a lot, but just enough to kind of maintain that air of mystery about the station. 
Now, this particular room that they think is a hollow suite and, you know, is somehow tied into the systems. I have to ask, when you read this, did you kind of figure out the nature of the room before it was revealed outright? Or was that something that surprised you? No, I, I pretty much figured it. And I don't know if I remember it from when I previously read the novel. But yeah, I, I figured it out. What about you? I... I had suspicions early on because um, I think there's a line when Quark has to first go in there on the day of the withdrawal or something like that, that kept coming back to me. And then when they're investigating it and not finding any hollow emitters or anything that's typical for a, a hollow suite, I was like, okay, I think I'm right. And we ultimately do find out. And again, we've already warned you about spoilers, but there's this orb that's apparently in that room and it's not a hollow suite responding to their voice commands. It's an orb showing them what they want to see, which I thought was interesting, but also something that I was like, I think I figured this out. <laughs> and not the kind of orb that you're used to. <laughs> no, this is a very different orb. This is one of the famed or fake red orbs of Jalbador. If you would, if you believe it, actually, that would have been a great title for the book. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The Fall of Teroknor. I do like that title, though. That is true. That is a good one. We'll talk a little bit more about the red orbs here coming up soon. Another couple of things I want to mention real quick is I love the idea of the Defiant, and they're using that to scan the station to find other areas of the station they may not be aware of. Yeah, that was a fun scene. I thought that was a. Uh really cool using this scan and basically they're they're doing a complete scan of the entire station and comparing it to the blueprints that they have on file to find any kind of more discrepancies and what it reveals is really interesting uh, when they discover that the waste treatment plant is missing or somebody has a sensor masking net up or something. Yeah, every time you think they're figuring something out, there's a little something, well, or it's being masked or something, you know, it's like, oh, what's the real answer here, <laughs> you know? And then also we find uh, two dead Cardassians on the station from years ago, and they've been kind of fused in with... Uh, the hull plating, I guess. Yeah. yeah, with the hull plating. They're, yeah, they're fused in with the hull plating. And it's from many years ago. And again, they think Cork has something to do with it. <laughs> Which, at, okay, at this point, I'm shaking my head going, no, no, no. Come on, guys. Like, Cork, no. Stop. <laughs> well, and they relate it to the recent murder on the station of Dow Norton. And I'm yeah, like, okay, this is years ago. Why do you think there's some kind of relation between the two? That didn't really connect with me. Yeah, I think it was, they were suspicious that they were both killed by a microwave weapon or something like that. But it was just such a tenuous connection. And the fact that it's years apart, just, yeah. At, at this point, I was getting pretty tired of them blaming Quark. I was as upset as Quark was, I think. Yeah, I was the same boat. I just thought they were being really unfair to Quark without having all the answers. You know, I can see him being a, a suspect, but not, nope, he's the murderer. Yep, it's got to be you, Quark. It's you. And he's just like, why don't you give me any respect? Why don't you listen? You people never listen. <laughs> I, mean, I just wanted to go, that's true. You know, why are they not listening? 
It's driving me crazy. But yeah, the whole microwave thing. That's right. I remember them making that connection saying that, oh, look, there's this microwave thing with the Cardassians is somewhat similar to what happened to Dow Norton. And so they must be connected, even though the Cardassians died years ago. And, you know, remember at this time, the Dominion War is going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. And that is even mentioned to Cisco at one point. Like, why are you worrying about a murder that's happened years ago? And he's like, because I don't want my people to forget things because Quark and Odo don't remember the day of withdrawal. And then there's this murder. And if all of a sudden my crew is starting to forget things, we need to figure this out now. And I'm like, figure out something that happened six years ago that you just discovered. And all of a sudden you, you know, do you think everything's going to turn out to be a, disaster because I, I don't know that i felt like it was like kind of stretching it at this point a little bit yeah for sure it, it's something that you know these bodies were just discovered now but they've if you think about it they've been there for six years just kind of stuck in the hull and i i understand the urgency of you know wanting to figure out what's happening now and if this has something to do with it i can see them kind of being caught overly cautious and, and wanting to figure that all out. But at the same time, it just, the thing that really bugs me is bringing Quark into it and saying that he must have something to do with it and all this kind of stuff. It just, it seems like an odd way for the plot to go at that point. I think he'd kind of be past suspicion at this point with regards to that i thought it was going to clear his name like oh well then maybe it wasn't quark but they're still kind of going along the lines of oh it's probably quark yeah but outside of that i mean it did make for some fun scenes great interaction between the characters and quark i mean especially with quark i mean i just thought he was brilliant in this book yeah i agree quark uh really steps up in this book and i i, I recently re-listened to our episode about the 34th rule so that was kind of fresh in my mind about how a lot of times we think of this character as just kind of a silly Ferengi and, and all this stuff, but there really is a serious side to this character. And I think he comes across really well in this story as a character that should be taken seriously. You know, he obviously has a very large piece to this puzzle because of his experiences on the day of the withdrawal. And I think the sooner they kind of come to their senses and realize they need to solve this with Quark's help rather than just blaming him is, you know, the better off they'll be. Then that kind of is a good connection then to who the actual villains are, or maybe they're villains and maybe they're connected to the murders. We don't know. And one of those characters would be Vash. Were you surprised to see Vash make an appearance in this? Uh, it was, it was a welcome surprise. I like the character of Vash. I don't know that this book got her character quite right, but I was still happy to see her. Basically, there's this mystery surrounding, and, and, and again, we as the readers are kind of left in the dark for a while and have to learn bits and pieces. There's this mystery surrounding the red orbs of Jalbador, and people are searching for them. So apparently all of the top smugglers and wheelers and dealers in the galaxy are kind of converging on Deep Space Nine. And Vash is one of them. And she's out to try and uh, buy, I think, one of the orbs. She has a map. I can't remember if she's yeah. buying or selling, but she's <laughs> she's 
interested anyway. Yeah, I can't remember if she... The, yeah, there was some kind of interest there. I think it was looking to buy the map, I think. Yeah, she's involved because she wants to know about the map and the red orbs and Cork's got this and he's put feelers out there for people to come in and bid and and all that. So she was involved in that. I I did feel the character maybe was a little off too because I felt she was being played too much like a smuggler. I don't think of Vash as being that much of a smuggler. Yeah, she felt more villainous and conniving and treacherous here than she usually is. And she definitely has that aspect to her. She, you know, tries to go behind Jean-Luc's back to excavate some ruins where she shouldn't. And she pals around with Q and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, she's never really struck me as... Uh, you know, a villain who's going to really hurt people or or really try hard to subvert the law or something. I don't know. I could be wrong, but she came across as a little bit too villainous here. Yeah, even when she rescues Quark from the chains, and she didn't she knock out Cisco? Is that right? Yeah, and I think I felt like she was going to leave him to die or something like that. Yeah. Maybe. And Cork's like, no, we got to help, you know? And she goes, I thought you didn't like him. And he's like, oh, no, I mean, he's the only person that's actually nice to me. Yeah. She had just a little bit too much of a dark streak to her that just didn't quite feel right. Yeah. Maybe she was just in a bad mood. I don't know. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> well, then we have another character named Bass. And I can't wonder if it's really pronounced base. It's B-A-S-E. Mm -hmm. But I always like he's a Ferengi and base just doesn't sound like a Ferengi name to me. But then again, yeah. I guess Quark is not. I don't know. <laughs> well, and apparently he's half Ferengi, half Klingon, I think. Well, I was thinking I, I couldn't remember for sure if he was half Klingon or if he was just raised by Klingons and he's full Ferengi. But I remember the big deal with the Ferengi was that the one thing about base that freaks them out is he actually grows hair. Yeah, he's shorter than the average Ferengi and he's got dark hair growing out of his head. <laughs> I don't know. This character, I, I got to say, I'm not about I'm not all about that base, about that base, about that base. <laughs> I didn't really like this character. I th I feel like he could have been interesting, but the story doesn't really use him all that well other than, you know, in this kind of semi-climactic fight scene towards the end. He kind of shows up and, and wreaks havoc a little bit with a mini bat laugh, I guess. I'm not sure what, what exactly is going on. He's He's very small, apparently, even for a Ferengi. And uh, I, I don't know, I had a hard time picturing this character and I wasn't a big fan. <laughs> yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot to him. He was just creepy, if anything. <laughs> he's just like, he's running Cork's bar when Cork wasn't there. And he's just, you know, yeah, just tiny and hairy and <laughs> rude. And ugh, he's just, I mean, he kind of reminds me of like possums. Like, I don't know. I, when I see a possum, especially at night, it freaks me out, you know? Oh, yeah. it's just, this, that's how I felt about this guy. <laughs> he, he's a possum Ferengi. I don't know. Uh, so then we have another two characters. They're a team here. They're Andorians. It's Satter and Lean. Now, I don't know, again, pronunciation-wise, S-A-T-R. I'm just going to say Satter and Lean. Yeah, Satyr or Satyr and Lean. Basically, they're Andorian sisters 
who believe that Quark has killed their brother, who is the aforementioned Dal Norton. I don't know why he gets two names and they only get one. Maybe they're Satter Norton and Lean Norton. I don't know how Ferengi or how Andorian names work in this book. Or maybe Satter's last name is Day. Saturday. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> I think. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> bravo. <laughs> Saturn Norton. That sounds better. Okay. But anyway. Yeah, so I'm they're they're these two Andorian sisters. Basically they're smugglers as well. They're looking to get their hands on these orbs, I think. And they kind of have this vendetta out for Quark because like I said, they believe that he killed their brother. That whole thing leads to Quark being in protective custody at the beginning of the novel, which turns into actual custody because Odo does think that he killed this Ferengi or this Andorian. And uh, it, it kind of gets a little confused as to exactly what their role is and what they believe, because the whole idea that they're after Quark for killing their brother kind of seems to get dropped at one point very quickly. I don't know what I thought about these two. They seemed vicious. That was one thing. They were very good fighters and uh, very threatening towards Quark. <laughs> I could understand why he's so freaked out about them. We don't learn a whole lot about them. That's the thing. We don't know a yeah. lot about their characters. They're just these sisters that, you know, accuse Quark. And so Odo believes that Quark is the mor murderer because they say it's him. And then they go missing and then they show up and it's just... Yeah, I mean, they're very violent, and as most Andorians can be. So, um, And then they capture Quark, and they have him in chains, as we mentioned earlier. Then Vash comes and helps Quark, but O'Brien and uh, Cisco get there before that. And it's kind of this part of the station where it's like sewage is there, so it's kind of gross <laughs> and everything. And yeah, I mean, it, it's fine. I, I don't know what it is. I'm not, I don't think of myself as one who loves Andorians, but every time an Andorian shows up, I'm always getting excited about that. I don't know if it's because they're blue and blue's my favorite color. I don't feel the same way when I see Bolians. <laughs> <laughs> it's something about the antenna, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's the antenna has something to do with it. Yes. And then uh, we have some Cardassian characters that we meet very early on during the day of withdrawal. And then later in this novel, Terrell and her Cardassian compatriots, which includes a bald Cardassian. Cause that seems to get mentioned very often. The bald one, <laughs> the bald one that just kept coming up. So um, I found these characters to be, well, Terrell actually to be very interesting uh, because she's really the villain of this book. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked these characters as well. And especially, like you said, Terrell, she is very menacing. I don't know. There's something about the way, like her presence, the way she commanded and was so threatening. She really is a presence that looms large in this novel. And the fact that she's there at the very beginning and there's all these machinations and by the end she's manipulated all of these things to come to pass that, you know, Cisco is kind of having to do her bidding because she's, you know, captured him and he's on the molten moon of Gerardo looking for this uh, artifact, this orb and all this stuff. It, this It's really fascinating. I love the role she plays and 
there's something about a really well-written villain that is really enticing and it's something that's hard to do i think the best villain that star trek's ever had is gul dukat so it's great to have another compelling cardassian villain here there's just something about the whole cardassian situation with the day of withdrawal and that she was there and now she's back and she has the missing puzzle pieces and at the same time is introducing us into this concept of the red orbs and what those are about and she kind of just brings about more of a mystery to everything that's going on it's always providing more details that make you question so what does that mean and and where did that come from and and then they go to this Bajoran moon where she captures Cisco and they go there to find the other red orb yeah i mean i just really found this character to be very menacing and interesting all at the same time and so i really like to see more of her as we get into the other books yeah i really loved the mind games that she plays so for example she's talking to cisco and the subject of the bajorans comes up and she starts saying really horribly racist things like oh their brains aren't as developed as cardassians so it was up to us to shepherd them and all this stuff which is something that like she very obviously believes but she's also just brought it up to kind of distract Cisco from his line of questioning like i love that she's so manipulative and just knows exactly how to play the people around her ah, i love it she's a horrible person but i love it <laughs> <laughs> i agree with you on that so yeah we're left with a lot of questions in this and we have our main crew as you know, who those people are, like Dax and Cisco and O'Brien and Kira. You know, then I think about it, there's not a whole lot of Kira in this at this point. No, there's a bit of when she's in sick bay and she wants to kind of, uh, or the infirmary, I should say, and she kind of wants to rip Vash apart because it seems that she's wanting to deal in the orbs. But that's kind of the biggest we part of Kira that we get. She was another character that kind of like how Jake felt more like an earlier season Deep Space Nine Jake. Kira felt a little bit more like an earlier Deep Space Nine season Kira. She was very angry and very, you know, first or second season Kira to me. I don't know. That was just the impression I got a little bit. Yeah, because there was one scene she's really angry. And is that... Is that with Fash? Is that the one you're talking about? I think so, yeah, in the infirmary. And she just wants to get her hands on her basically <laughs> because Vash had some information about what was it? Well, she was under suspicion of, cause right before she got knocked out with the dart, she said something about uh, Quark was going to have an auction of orbs, okay, which really ticked Kira off because she, uh, because that's one of the worst crimes in the Bajoran system. Yeah, that's right. Because that she finds out, Oh wait, Cork is going to sell an orb. What is going on? There's another, or like, where did this orb come from? We need to find out from Vash. And they're like, well, settle down, settle down. Let's Dax is like, let me, let me try to, you know, kind of be friendly with her and maybe she'll reveal things. And Kira's like, no, you just ask her. And they're like, just stand off to the side, chill out. <laughs> yeah. It was very much the intense pissed off, Kira that from the earlier seasons or whatever I can see that for sure but at the same time 
this is an important big thing that if there's another orb out there and Quirk is, you know, has it and is trying to sell it, I can see where she would get really, really mad. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So one of the other characters in the main crew is a Starfleet officer named Arla Rees. And she is Bajoran, but she wasn't raised on Bajor. She has spent most of her life on Earth, and, I mean, she knows about Bajor. She lived on another uh, planet in the Bajor system or whatever, and they left during the occupation. And so she wasn't brought up in the religion. She wasn't brought up around other Bajorans. So she comes to the station as a Starfleet officer and observes Bajorans from an outside perspective of them while being Bajoran. And it's an interesting character, but at the same time, I'm like, why is she there? Like, what is what does she have to do with the story? And so it makes you wonder, is she really who she is or where does she play into the overall story? Yeah, I had kind of the same thoughts. I was wondering about her. She kind of is just there. There's some interesting scenes, one especially with O'Brien, I think, where she kind of shows her true feelings about the Bajoran religion, which is very, she's very much against it. She does not, she thinks that the prophets are actively harmful for Bajor and have held Bajor back while the rest of the galaxy has advanced. It's a very uncomfortable scene. O'Brien does not want to be there discussing it. And I think he's like slowly reaching for his comm badge to like find an excuse to get out of this conversation. Because he even said there's certain topics he was told never to discuss, and that is religion, politics, and there was like one other thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's the topics that you don't discuss with your family around the Thanksgiving table, right? Like, you know, religion and politics are two of the really big ones. And she and, goes right at it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it's one of those things that that's always been an interesting balancing act on Deep Space Nine. The Federation characters are just there at the invitation of the Bajorans to administrate the station, which is still owned by the Bajorans. And there's that, you know, there's a lot of really great episodes where there's that conflict between science and religion, you know, uh, in the hands of the prophets being one of them from the end of season one. Uh, just, I I love when that debate comes up, but she is just so against the prophets. It's not even a little disagreement about the nature of the wormhole. It's, no, the prophets are bad and they should not be worshipped and you are all really stupid for worshipping them. It's like, whoa. <laughs> well, she makes that point to O'Brien. She says, well, you know, Bajorans have been around longer than humans, longer than Cardassians, Klingons, Romulans, or whatever. And she points out the fact that, you know, why are we not as advanced in, you know, technology or taking over parts of the galaxy? It's because they're more passive. They've just kind of lived by the rules of the prophets and, and, as they're just living their lives on Bajor, Klingons are taking over parts of the galaxy. Starfleet, the Federation, is exploring and taking long trips and, and creating the Federation and Klingon and, and Federation space and all these and the Romulans, you know, and everybody's just like surpassing them, even though they were around first. And she feels like, yeah, they become so passive and just, you know, accepting what the prophets say. And, you know, and then they get conquered by Cardassians. And this would never have happened if they had progressed further along 
and technology and taking over their own space and everything. And the Cardassians maybe never would have taken over Bajor. Yeah. And I mean, to a certain extent, she makes some good arguments and has a very good point. But at the same time, I kind of want to say, like, maybe that's not the way to go. You know, Bajorans, when they're not under the boot heels of the Cardassians, seem to have a pretty great little planet and a great life leading an interstellar federation or conquering worlds. Maybe that's not the route to go. Maybe the Bajorans have things figured out a little bit more than we do. I guess when you're conquered and occupied by the Cardassians, that's not so good. But other than that, they're great. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think that's the thing. It's just what had happened in the last decades is just sign of what maybe shouldn't have happened if they had not been suppressed by the prophets, in her opinion. Yeah, and then it comes to these red orbs, which I really found fascinating because, again, it's almost like the station where we find out there's hidden areas of the station that no one knows about. And again, we just assume when we watch Deep Space Nine that there's these orbs and that's all it is. There's just these orbs. But no, there are another type of orb out there and they're called the red orbs. So we have the regular orbs, which are blue, and now these red orbs. And legend has it that the red orbs, the three that are brought together, will form and open a new wormhole. And what's interesting is how Kira explains, up oh, red orbs, whatever. Is that what Quark was hiding, even though I got really mad about it? It was just red orbs? Those are fairy tales. They're just children's stories. They don't actually exist. And my favorite thing is even with Kai Wen, when Cisco even brings her the two of the red orbs and they glow and she's just like, and he's like, you know, we should study these, take them back to Bajor. She's like, oh, come on. Don't <laughs> fall for these childish stories. Red orbs don't really exist. Don't be fooled by this. He's like, but they are glowing. She's like, I have seen other things glow. <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines. I was hoping you'd mention that. I've seen things glow. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, she's got a point. Like, things glow. <laughs> but yeah, no. Kai Wen, I think, in this novel, they got her voice perfect. When her first line, when Cisco goes to meet her and she says something like, Oh, Emissary, I just love being called to the station in the middle of my many important things that I do on the planet. I especially find the many hours that it takes to fly here gives me a great time to, like, meditate and <laughs> reflect on my life. <laughs> wow, she's so... Oh, that was perfect. I totally heard her voice coming through there. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> and then she turns to Kira and she goes, oh, and Kira, you know, and then we just like, yeah, just, it's so good to see you again. <laughs> and you could just feel Kira just like, you know, <laughs> it's good to see you too, Kai Wen. <laughs> like biting her uh. teeth, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, that was that was great. And then, you know, she's not willing to help them. I mean, she's not in there very long, but he no, even questions. Yeah. He's like, why did you make the trip? You knew why you were coming here. It was for the red orbs and you don't even want to do anything about it. Why would you even bother? And you do kind of <laughs> wonder. It's like, what is wrong with you, woman? You just want to get it, people. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm happy to see her because I think... As horrible as her, as her character is, I love the presence she brings to Deep Space Nine and how other people react to her. But 
Yeah, she's not in this story for very long. It's kind of odd that they bring her in for the really small part she has, too. Yes, but uh, he eventually says, you know, well, if he gets the three orbs, he'll invite her to see them. And she's like, oh, okay, I'd love to see your wormhole, whatever. <laughs> so, and which well, they do little, find. little does she know. <laughs> yeah, they found that third orb because you take the orbs and when you put two of them together, they start to glow and they like pulsate the light the the orbs help lead you to the third and last orb and you know they get brighter and they pulsate faster and all that stuff so they're walking around the station and of course it takes them to wherever cork's bar of course you know and of course Kira's like i knew cork had a freaking orb <laughs> and very early in the book it's set up about this mural in cork's bar of what gal Ducat calls the admiral because it's a tholian admiral in this image in this this mural but it's not really all that clear as to what that really is and maybe that is the admiral so cork even calls it the admiral but then it's even identified later that they come to find out that it's actually like some kind of male organ (laughs) rom that's what rom figures it is uh, much to the delight and laughter of him and Quark, apparently on regular occasions, it's it's a tell it's a the organ of some kind of a tellerite. That's right, of I a tellerite, <laughs> and it might even be upside down. They're not even sure if it's the right way. I was convinced with, with Rom's theory that that's what that was, and it's funny too because then they kind of snicker each other how Galdicott would always salute it when he'd come in. <laughs> to the bar but anyway we find the orb behind the tellerite's male organ (laughs) (laughs) and i think it was rom no not rom i think it was nog that found it there like they were getting he's like it's here i found the orb so they bring the three red orbs together and all of a sudden and they i think they even brought kai win like go get kai win show her that we found the three and then all of a sudden something starts to happen where this wormhole starts to form within Quark's bar. (laughs) Which, of course, leads to the evacuation of Deep Space Nine and the destruction, seemingly, of Deep Space Nine Um, as as some of the crew gets away on the Defiant, and I think they evacuated a thousand people or something like that, but there were still people left on board that didn't make it off. And we witness on the Defiant's bridge the complete destruction and sucking in of this of the station into this wormhole which uh, i have to admit i was flipping pages during that part i was totally into the story at that point it's like oh wow bruce is right this is pretty good (laughs) (laughs) yeah because now deep space nine is destroyed but we know it really wasn't because this is in the sixth season of deep space nine so what's going on here and then the defiant looks like it's going to get sucked into this wormhole and all of a sudden we get to another chapter and they wake up on the bridge and they survived it and they look at the stars to figure out where they are. And not only did they figure out where they are, it wasn't just a question of where, but when. <laughs> and we get this incredible cliffhanger where they're hailed by the USS Opaka, I believe it is. Yes, that's right. And they're, I forget how many years they say they're in the future. I is remember it? thinking it was about 
20 or 30, something like 20, that. 20, 25, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And they're hailed by the captain of the USS Opaka, Captain Thomas Riker, interestingly enough. With gray hair and gray beard. Yeah. And what I thought was especially interesting, and you probably know exactly where this is going because you've read the later books, but I have not read these books. So I, I got to say, first of all, it was really hard once I was done this book to put it down, put it away on the shelf and take out a time to hate to read because that's the next book we're doing. I really just wanted to read the next millennium book. And it was, it was work to not do that. But anyway, that aside, uh, the uniform that Thomas Raker is wearing, they say it's kind of like a mix between a Bajoran uniform and a, but with a Starfleet insignia on it. Which, that's, what's that about? And apparently, they're taking part in something called the War of the Prophets. And Thomas Riker tells Sisko, you have to choose a side. And that's kind of where the novel ends. And there's other Starfleet uh, starships that show up, and yet yeah. they're firing on... On the, on the USS Opaka. Yeah. So why is one Starfleet ship firing on another and also cisco as he hails the opaka he says hey you know we're from you know whatever 20 25 years ago we need to go back we shouldn't you know really talk and Riker essentially tells him you're not going back we're you're needed here to fight the war <laughs> so i mean it's just like <laughs> why wouldn't you send them back and how you know, and I, but then at the same time, if they've been gone, sending them back would change the timeline. So, you know, but a, a, anyway, it's just, yeah, that's how it ends. And you're just like, wait, what's going on? What's coming up next? And now we have to wait a couple episodes until we talk about book two, mm, which is very frustrating. <laughs> that might be part of the reason I got through a time to hate so quickly. <laughs> it took me about a day and a half to read that because. I really want to get back to this story. <laughs> well, it is a little weird how we're doing this in a sense, because when we read a time to love, it ends with the cliffhanger going into a time to hate. And instead of reading a time to love and going to a time to hate, we skip over it, read something else, then start a trilogy of books. We read book one, then we go back to a time to hate. Then we're going to read something else. Then we go back to book two. You know, most people don't read books in that manner. But we also set up the show so it's not like you're listening to us talk about book one, two, and three all in a row. And if you're not into it, then you're just listening to all these episodes all at once. And I don't know. Maybe we'll do it that way at some point. We like to spread it out. Because, for example, like the Shatnerverse books, we would be spending like three months just doing Shatnerverse. <laughs> and a time, too, would be the same one. Yeah. Oh, and that would be... I, I don't want to say that would be torture, but... <laughs> It wouldn't be my first choice. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> no, me either. But what'd you think of the fall of Terraknor? Well, I, I do have to say I did have some minor concerns about it. Some things that we talked about. I think some of the characters weren't quite right. And just little details like that, that bugged me from time to time. However, Overall, as a story, I thought it was incredible, and I am hooked. I really can't wait to see what happens in the next book. And it's been a while since I've been this invested in uh, one of the older Star Trek novels. 
So yeah, I, I have to give this one, I think, I want to say four out of five red orbs of Jalbador, even though there are only three. It was that good that I've created two more red orbs of Jalbador and taken one of them to make my four out of five. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very interesting. So yes, I read these books, as I mentioned, when they first came out, and I've always wanted to reread them. And I've had them on the shelves for years, obviously 18 years now. And I was like, someday I want to reread them. And I read it and I think I like it just as much as I did then. So my opinion hasn't changed. It's some of these books are some (laughs) of my favorite all time Star Trek books. So I have to say that I have to give this three red orbs brought together, exploding into a big wormhole of love. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's great. They're just, there's just so much going on. It just, it just really captures interest in, in what's happening. I think a lot of the characters are spot on. Maybe a little things a little off. I do agree that Jake seems a little younger than he should be, but they're just they're just slight things that really don't matter much to me when I read this book. It's just so enjoyable. And if I remember correctly, we're on a roller coaster ride from here on out. <laughs> I can't wait because you know, this is just the first novel of three. And there's so much in this book, like a lot that we barely touched on a lot. There's, there's so many twists and turns in this plot that uh, we didn't even mention, you know, three quarters of them, I think. So yeah, I'm really, really. And for those who are fans of Vic Fontaine, he makes an appearance in here too. That's true. That's very true. A, A very fun appearance too. I really liked his role. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So check it out. If if you love Deep Space Nine, I would definitely recommend reading this book. Even if you don't read Star Trek books, you might want to read this one, in my opinion. Well, Bruce, wait, we're receiving a hail. It's it's from us in the future. We're, we've apparently gone to the future. And something's going on. I, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. But wait a minute. Was there a wormhole that just destroyed our recording studios? What? just happened my god i'm so confused yes it was a wormhole of love that i created (laughs) oh shoot you brought your three orbs together and created a wormhole of love you destroyed our homes using the power of love (laughs) that's the power of love Oh, oh, well, well, it's it. been fun singing about the power of love today, but it's not the only thing we've been singing or discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. You know, I remember the freedom of having my own car, and believe it or not, I actually had a Plymouth Fury. It wasn't a 58, right? No it way. Was a, it was a 73, <laughs> but yeah, my first car was a Plymouth Fury, and there was this is the movie was part of the reason why. When I saw that for sale, it was a cheap car. I paid like 500, 300 bucks, something like that for it. It was in really Brandon, good shape. you really, you really didn't take the message of this movie. <laughs> you went out and bought one of those cars. <laughs> it was yellow. It wasn't red, you know. So who knows? Someone might have sprayed it. Standard orbit. <laughs> We recorded most of the Shatner episodes. Every now and then we missed. Like, okay, we'll get it next round with Nimoy. We kind of thought it'd be the same thing. 
It's like, oh, there's going to be no difference. It's just Spock reading it instead of Kirk. No, completely different, right? So it's like, oh, crap. We should have bought 160 tapes instead of 80 for this. Literary Treks. I did like the scenes with his family and Riker, you know, spending the night at the home, getting up in the morning, having breakfast with the family. Oh, look, they made him coffee. There was just there was just something really nice and settling about Riker just being in that situation and being treated with such respect and with arms around him, you know, just welcoming him and making him feel at home. And I guess you don't really feel that all that often in many Star Trek stories when you beam down to a planet and you're just welcomed into somebody's home and you're just seeing what a normal, happy family is like. Warp 5. That's kind of how Trip acted, though, right? He he needed to see this. He needed to actually step in uh, to the situation. And, and I appreciate that. You know, like, a lot of people give him some flack for being kind of pig-headed, or I think they even almost assume that he has a problem with the three genders. And he's like, no, I don't have a problem with the three genders. I have a problem that this third sex, I, I guess, they get it wrong. Enterprise, the writers should have said sex the entire time. They should have said sex. But I'm guessing, you know, they're on TV, and if they say sex a whole bunch, they might get uh, the wrong the wrong idea. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd love it if you left us a star rating and a written review. Five stars if you love us. Fewer stars if you don't, but make sure to also tell us what we can do to make it better. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get in touch with us. The best place to join the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to get that from you as well. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to me or Bruce. And you can also find the network on Twitter and we're on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up on future shows. Plus, you get great conversations happening about the books and comics with fellow Goodreads users. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click to join group and we'll let you write in. And we'd like to thank 
Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Motella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not on the original 1701 bridge fighting with Dax, where can people find you? Well, you can find me recreating all sorts of really cool Star Trek adventures on the Holosuite. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos mostly about Star Trek. And on my book review website at Treklet.com. And of course, in the Babel Conference as well. And Bruce, when you're not hanging out in a secret hollow suite with <gasps> clothed Ferengi females, oh my, where can we find you? Ooh, the clothed ones create such a mystery for me. <laughs> I might grow my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars. So check that out. And of course, I'm always in the Babel conference and on our Goodreads group. So check that out. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number 